2: There's one group of people who would say that the the scriptures advocate for a more socialist way of running an economy. And there are people who would take the opposite, which is the scriptures advocate for a more market-oriented or capitalist way of running an economy. And I think we have to be careful because we all want to read scripture in a way that benefits what we already believe. That's just human nature, but that's not right. And so I think we first have to start with what does scripture say Consistently. And it's not an economics textbook. It's, it's, nor is it a civics book. So we're not going to look up chapter and verse and say, you know, thou shalt be a capitalist or socialist. You're never going to find that. And so what does the meta narrative, all of scripture, not one verse taken out of context, but what does, what are the principles of how we should live, of who we are? What do those tell us about the type of society we need?
1: Hello and welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons for this week on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot. Every week, the purpose of Q Ideas, as you just heard, is to help you stay curious, to think well, and then to advance good in our world. By the grace of God, even in our very tumultuous times. Yeah, there are lots of issues going around. Globally, you're thinking like the war in Ukraine or China threatening to invade Taiwan. Here in the U.S., inflation is running high. We're still dealing with the after effects of the pandemic and we're about a month away from the midterm elections. All these disruptions and so many contentious issues. Maybe it makes you long for the good old days when life was less complicated and times were less contentious. Well, before Gabe joins us and we get to our featured conversation this week, I want to go back to a segment of a conversation Gabe had back in 2020 with scholar and bestselling author Leonard Sweet about the hot zones of our world, those disruptions which he outlines in his 2019 book Rings of Fire. In that conversation, he pointed out some things for us to consider, especially if you're one who wishes you were living in a less contentious time. Let's listen to this.
3: Part of our mandate is to um, be present to the time that we're in. I mean, to serve this present age, our calling to fulfill. That's a Charles Wesley song. And part of the challenge for me has always been, what does it mean to serve this present age, my calling to fulfill? It's not an age I would have picked. It's not an age that I even like, but this is the age that God gave me. And for us to think that one day we're going to be able to meet our maker and say, you know, I didn't really like that aid you gave me. So I, I did really effective ministry for the 1970s. And I was so good for the 1970s. yeah. But this is the 21st century. You got 22nd century kids. Yeah, but I really didn't like that moment you gave me. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work for us.
0: Right. And part of what's so wild about this particular moment, there's the chaos of it, right? There's so much happening at this moment that, we know about and maybe in previous centuries there was a lot happening and we just didn't know about it but now because of our ability to stay informed to read about it to understand to see the news to to be aware of way more information than maybe mentally we were we were really capable of knowing how to synthesize or process i think it can leave people just feeling paralyzed and what you do is you lead us through it and you go look we don't need to be paralyzed by this let's just take a moment here let's let's walk through what it's going to look like to advance into this new age. And, and maybe you could just help us understand when you look at the context, you know, the whole first part of your book gets into some of the big hot zones, you call them. Can you just describe for us, uh, for you, what are the ways we should be thinking about the hot zones, the especially in American life, since a lot of our listeners will be American that are listening to this? What what are you seeing as as we look at the next decade or two? what we're needing to be aware of that's just unique about this moment, maybe compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago?
3: Well, there's so many. One of you already mentioned it, Gabe, and that is the change itself has changed. And this is something that I I started talking about back in in Faithquakes 94, that change is no longer incremental, it's it's exponential. So that's why everything's happening so fast. That's why everything's happening so quick and that can be a little dizzying for people and i think we ought to understand that but we also have jesus so we can do this but um i think i think one of the biggest challenges that, that we've got to come up with right now is that this is a this is a culture that is profoundly not just post christian but anti christian and it's becoming more so and that does not mean and i i spent a whole lot of time in this book as you know talking about The problem with secularization theory. And this is a culture that is not secular. This is a culture that is wrapped and warped and riven in spirituality. It is a deeply spiritual culture. It's just not a Christian culture. I talk about sacralization, not secularization. Mm -hmm. And, And we become out there in this culture, we become polytheistic. There are many, many gods. We become plural theistic. That's one vast synthesis of all the religions in this pantheon of gods and the whole secularization theory that academics have loved to talk about for the last 34 years, I call an academic hoax. It is not the reality in which we live. We live in a deeply, this culture turns everything it touches into an idol and everything is sacred for it. I mean, sports we are coming up on the super bowl. I mean, this is a sacred ritual for crying out loud, but let's get rid. Let's get some categorical clarity here that we do not live in a secular culture. It's a, deeply sacral sacred culture but where which is profoundly hostile to christianity
1: Hmm. again some thoughts there from leonard sweet author of rings of fire on knowing our times well and remembering we are called by god to these times so are we going to answer the call as a church well, Gabe joins us now in studio, and if you were with us last week, we started a series of special shows here on Q Ideas with Gabe Lines as we look at some of the hot-button issues of our day. Gabe, remind us what we're doing and what we're hoping to accomplish.
0: I'm wanting to take a look, and I want our community to take a look at some of the big ideas that we can take a new and fresh approach to. How do we think about them? They're concepts that have been pre-framed for many people. They're concepts that drive entire generations to think a certain way. And so it's essential sometimes to pull back and to think well about what does it mean as a faithful Christian to engage these topics in society. Last week we talked with John Anazu about pluralism, a very fascinating conversation about the role in which every one of us must play and be a part of the solution in a divided society. And today we're going to jump into not not a topic that's less divisive, but the idea of free markets, capitalism, socialism, the conversation that in many ways drives our politics today and our economy conversations. And we're going to talk to an economist, Anne Rathbone Bradley. She's the George and Sally Meyer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director At the Fund for American Studies, she previously served as vice president of economic initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work and Economics. She has her Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University and has authored several books, including Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism. And what I want to do is invite Anne into this conversation with us, with you, for us to think well about modern day economics. We're in a season where everyone's talking about the economy. We're talking about inflation. We're trying to understand what direction is this going? What principles can we even trust anymore in this new age of thinking about money and markets? And so Anne's going to help us think well about that today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, I just love how much time you have spent in the world of trying to understand economics. And I mean, for someone like you, you must be sitting in this moment in 2022, going, I've studied a lot. I've read the books. I understand the history. I'm trying to figure out where we're at on this cycle and, and where we sit. But but what has it been like for you these last few years, just watching the economy and from your own expertise, considering what you think about it?
2: It's so true that the way you framed that, you can study and read all the books and go to graduate school. But the real world is nuanced and complicated. And we certainly find ourselves in a moment I think with a confluence of factors in terms of our economy, obviously, we've all gone through a pandemic and we have dealt with lockdown and business closures and unemployment all over the place and gross domestic product all over the place. It has been a zig and then a zag and then a zig back again. And so I do think um, all of the books in the world only can prepare us to be students of the world. And that is the power to me of the economic way of thinking. It doesn't mean that economists are poised to tell policymakers, this is what you should do to fix the problem. Uh, We don't have crystal balls, but it does allow us to be, to apply our theory very consistently to the world's problems and to try to solve some of the puzzles. And so I think that economics, I mean, it's it's the perfect time to apply economics to our issues. You know, people are worried. People are worried about the future of inflation. They're worried about their household budgets. They're worried about the future of being able to go to college. All of these things are in the news right now. And so I do think that economics and just going back to some of the principles allows us to thoughtfully navigate some of these nuanced topics.
0: Yeah. So as an economist, I mean, as you've studied this, were, were you going crazy when you heard inflation start to take on a new definition in recent months?
2: yeah, you know, so this is I, I will say it's not as easy as it sounds, and so it, you know it is you know most people consider the NBER definition that that's the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is two consistent quarters of a decline in gross domestic product, which is a measure of overall output, and it's a, it's kind of a proxy for income. And so that sounds very straightforward, but we're in a weird economy right now where you have had the drop in GDP, but you've also had really strong Employment numbers, the economy rebounded. I mean, after the worst of the pandemic lockdowns and, you know, just what happened during that time with consumer spending and government spending, we recovered. Uh, Unemployment really recovered. GDP has mostly recovered. And so it's not an economy of the 1970s. So we can't even go back and say, oh, we we did exactly this thing before. Let's figure out how to fix it. But I do think there are political games that get played, right, because elections are coming up in November. And so it is kind of politics, I think, becomes a game sometimes of semantics where, you know, nobody wants to, no president wants to say, well, we're now in a recession. Here's what we're going to do about it because people will blame the president. I don't think it's one president's fault, by the way. So I do think we're seeing, you know, some of these uh, debates are a little bit meaningless. What we really need to figure out is how to help people be more productive, how to help people get to work, be able to open jobs, start businesses. That's the stuff of economic growth
0: yeah and I want to talk a little bit about just that big idea. I mean you've focused a lot of attention in the space of understanding uh what a Christian perspective might look like on capitalism i mean that's a, that's a topic that when you talk to the younger generation, the perspective on capitalism you start we're we're starting to see data where there's just much more interest in more socialism ideas, democratic socialism so could we just define some terms up front about how would you define capitalism and how would you define? Socialism, those two different economic concepts.
2: Gabe, thank you for starting with a question about definitions. I think that's the only place we can start because these words have a lot of baggage with them, both of the words, and so people kind of maybe say one thing and mean one thing, and the hearer hears another thing or interprets another thing. So, capitalism, the way economists talk about this word, is very specific, and it has everything to do with how resources are allocated in a in an economy, and so in a capitalist system. We have decentralized ownership, so private ownership of of what we would call the means of production. So land and capital and labor decisions are made by firms that are owned by individuals and they are free to make decisions. So if if you have money in your bank account, you can decide what you're going to do, how you're going to invest it. You could invest it in a variety of different ways, but it's your choice. Socialism has to do also with the allocation of resources, but rather than occurring in a decentralized way, it occurs in a collective or a centralized way. So it's the public ownership of the means of production. So we own these things together, and then we have to have someone in charge who makes decisions about how investments will be made. So it's a very different way of figuring out resource movements and allocations at any given time. And I think that is really where we need to start. Because as you said, there are people, especially younger generations, people I see in my college classrooms that say, you know, if you pull them, they favor socialism. And so I think that's a great starting point for what do you mean by that? And what do you think capitalism means? And I would argue that they think it means something different than the way economists use those terms.
0: Right. As you're pointing out, I mean, most people these days are perceiving capitalism to a version of capitalism that's greed that takes advantage of people that isn't necessarily where capitalism began, where it's the empowerment of the individual to go out and earn income based on market, based on creating value in an economy that people are willing to pay for. And so it it definitely has a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. Um, And so when you've got student loan forgiveness, for example, being discussed in our culture right now and and granted – There's no question that people who have student loans are excited about that policy, right? Even if principally they're like, I don't know if this is the best idea. I'm excited about this policy because I know it's going to immediately help me. So how do we step back from the immediate reactionary way of thinking about these words and these policies and get the big picture of what a Christian and how a Christian should think about it?
2: Such a good question. And I think we could talk about that question for hours. So of course, we don't, we can't do that, but uh, I'll try to be succinct. I, I do think that it's, you're right to say that if you're getting student loan forgiveness in the moment, it's, you're enthusiastic about this because it seems like a gift, right? It's just, we're el- eliminating or erasing some of the debt that you have. And that certainly will benefit the people who who get that erasure. I think the problem with this, and this is the problem with a lot of policies, uh, whether they, you know, I mean, I don't think student loan forgiveness, we can be, we can say that's socialism. It's just a policy that intervenes in an economy in a specific way to reallocate the distribution of resources. I think the problem is this, and I see this a lot when we have policy conversations. It's kind of like pulling, putting a bandaid on a bullet wound which is inappropriate, right? So we need to deal with the source of the problem. If you look at the numbers just since the year 2000, the cost of tuition and fees in higher education has gone up 178%. That's a lot. That's a lot. And this hurts people that are not super wealthy, right? So if you have a lot of money, if you're in the top 1% or the top 10%, you don't want the cost to go up, but you can deal with it. You can afford it. You're still going to send your kids to school. But if you're in the middle class, lower middle class, working class, and you want a chance to send your kids to college, that's a really increasingly steep price tag. So the problem with student loan forgiveness is that it creates a lot of bad incentives, it is going to incentivize students to take on more debt, and it's going to incentivize colleges to raise tuition and fees more. So it actually exacerbates the problem. So there's one type of policy we could we could offer that would say, well, we want to help people manage their debt. And then there might be another type of policy we could want to discuss that says we want to make college cheaper. Those are different things. And so I think what this does is it feels good for the moment, especially if you benefit from it. But the long-term consequences, they always come calling. And that is going to be increased college costs. of Americans right now don't attend college. And so the other kind of, I think, moral argument here is, is it okay to make other people pay for your choices? I think ultimately what we want to do is make college better and cheaper. And the way we need to do that is probably to get less government involvement in higher education, not more.
0: Yeah, great point. And, And I think you said it well in terms of how the market works, right? The market then responds to these handouts and prices go up, right? They go, there's more money we can receive. And and that's sort of this mixture of capitalism and socialism thought coming together. But would you speak a little bit to the idea, how much faith theology, Christian understanding plays into capitalism as a way to think about how we create the best flourishing societies, Versus socialism, or would you say socialism has a great argument as well, because many people of course go to the early church moments and talk about everyone selling their things and then giving 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 them to one another um, The difference I know there was they actually had a choice to make as to whether they wanted to sell everything and give it <laughs> they weren 't being forced right. to do it um, and we we also see property rights throughout the scriptures right that that um I mean one of the ten commandments is thou shalt not steal it presupposes that people own things. Uh, people own things. And and so those are some of those deeper ideas that I'm not sure get talked about a lot when we're talking about scripture, Christianity, capitalism, socialism. So I'd, I'd love just your take as you're helping develop people's views of these things. How, how do you help a young Christian understand uh, which one of these views might be most closely associated with maybe perhaps the way in which human beings flourish?
2: I love that, and I love the way you phrase that at the end, which is most closely associated because there's one group of people who would say that the the scriptures advocate for a more socialist way of running an economy, and there are people who would take the opposite, which is the scriptures advocate for a more market oriented or capitalist way of running an economy, and I think we have to be careful because we all want to read scripture in a way that benefits what we already believe. Right, <laughs> and that's just human nature, but that's not right. And so I think we first have to start with what does scripture say consistently? And it's not an economics textbook, it's, it's, nor is it a civics book. So we're not going to look up chapter and verse and say, you know, thou shalt be a capitalist or socialist. You're never going to find that. And so I think this is much more nuanced levels of thinking, uh, which is what does the meta-narrative, all of Scripture, not one verse taken out of context, but what are the principles of how we should live, of who we are? What do those tell us about the type of society we need? Then I think, young Christians, when we start the conversation that way, we can do what we all should do together, which is go to Scripture first. As you said, the Ten Commandments are very clear about what is ours, what is not ours, but you can even go back earlier. You can look in Genesis. We get a lot of information there, first and foremost, that we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we have a job to do. And really, we are stewards of what God has created. And, and, and stewardship means creating, adapting, discovering, thinking, all of those things were to unleash our human creativity on what God has given us, and we are to serve one another in doing that. So that's, I think if we can cull those first principles from scripture, then we can have a conversation about generally what type of system. I remain very convinced that a market-oriented system is the best way. I don't think God says, go be a capitalist, but I do think, you know, because here's the other thing, people are people. Sin is ubiquitous, no matter whether you're the president of a country, the president of a hedge fund or running a church, everybody is a sinner. And so we have to deal with sin in all of our human institutions. So there's no utopia and there's no perfectibility. And I think that is a problem I hear in the rhetoric about these two debates. And both sides are guilty of it. One will say, you know, we can eliminate want and we can create perfect equality and all of this type of stuff. And the other will say, capitalism gives us all the stuff we want and there's you know there's there's no sin we need to worry about both of those positions are wrong i think again in the nuanced arguments are how do we live to fulfill god's purposes and what type of economic system allows us to do that best knowing that economics doesn't solve all of our problems we get more stuff and that's a good thing we can live longer healthier lives and do more of god's work but it's more than just materialism
0: yeah well and today i know capitalism does get blamed for a lot of the problems in the world, like climate change or racial issues, sexual revolution. I mean, you start to see capitalism become kind of the boogeyman for everything that people might have a problem with in the world. How do you see that affecting a new generation, a younger generation coming up in an environment where a lot of the rhetoric is going that direction? Mm-hmm. And and how would you warn? How would you show people who maybe haven't experienced a world where communistic and socialistic ideas were driving uh, a lot of the culture for for a season, and it had a lot of horrible ramifications. How do do we do a good job of trying to balance this out and to remind uh, of history?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question as well. I think the problem is that when students come into the classroom with the notions that you're talking about, which I think you're accurately describing where they are, is that they want to dismiss some things out of hand capitalism is cultivates greed it gets in, you know worsens inequality and it creates climate problems then you just dismiss it out of hand without thinking about it i this is the beauty of higher education or at least it's supposed to be is that you submit yourself to difficult ideas to ideas that you disagree with and then you think critically about them that's the whole process of a liberal arts education at least that's what we're supposed to be doing and so i think one thing we have to do is challenge ourselves challenge our students to say what could i be wrong about where could my eyes be opened and at that young age i think there's they have a lot of great insights and i don't have the same perspective now you know that they do because i'm older than them so i learn from them but they learn from me too if they're willing so i think we need to have a willingness and we need to cultivate that i think we not, need to stop vilifying people who disagree with us this is very much a pernicious cultural trend I think we try to litmus test people. Well, you're for this, so you're bad. Or you're for this, so you're good. We have to stop doing that. And this, like Twitter and things like this doesn't help, right? Because it's a very short and kind of nasty, (laughs) often, conversation. It's not really a conversation. Um, But the other thing I would say is, look, our hope comes in Christ. And I am baffled by the persistent negativity everywhere. I I mean, I'm an optimist, I think, by personality, but I'm really an optimist because I'm a Christian and I have hope in the future. The scripture tells me to have hope in the future. But the economics that I understand reinforces the optimism. I mean, it is an amazing time to be alive. If you look at the numbers, there's just no arguing it's the best time to be alive. We have real problems, but there's never been a time where we have real hope for solutions to these problems.
1: Well again, thank you for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons here on Faith Radio and Gabe's conversation there with economist Anne Rathbone Bradley of the Fund for American Studies, a conversation hoping to inspire hope in these times of economic disruption. And Gabe, it's part of a series of conversations we started last week here on Q Ideas, dealing with the hot-button topics of our times, helping us to think well and deeply about
0: them. Well, I hope you're enjoying this series. We're going to continue on with more and more conversations with scholars, helping us think well about really particular and specific topics that are driving a lot of the conversation. And what we're trying to do is get underneath the current conversation and think about the foundational concepts, the foundational ideas that drive the way many people think, including our And so I hope you're enjoying these conversations. Continue with us as we have three more conversations to come in the weeks ahead.
1: Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at myfaithradio.com.